0: Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. On this episode, we're going to do something a little different. As you know, we usually tell stories about new or interesting research and why it matters. We focus on the outputs, you know, the findings, but the reality is that this research is of course conducted by people, people who bring their own experiences to their work in important ways. And it's also true that most social policy researchers don't look like or come from the communities that they study. Today, we're going to share the stories of two Latina researchers at different points in their career one at the pinnacle, and one who is just starting her journey. Though they're from different generations, they have similar stories about their childhoods, upbringings rooted in resilience, the power of education, and their drive to pay it forward. Together, they make the case for why representation in research really matters. First up.
1: I'm uh, Marta Tienda. I'm a professor of sociology and public affairs at Princeton University, and I am on the board of trustees of the Urban Institute.
0: Marta is a world-renowned sociologist whose research has focused on racial and ethnic discrepancies in different areas of social policy, including economic well-being, education, employment, and more. She's authored many books and published over 200 papers in academic journals. But Marta, a first-generation college student with immigrant parents, didn't plan this career path.
1: I was born in Texas, but I grew up in Michigan. My parents moved when I was very young because it was difficult to be Mexican in South Texas, and the opportunities were very limited.
0: Marta's father got a job at a steel mill, so the family moved to a housing project, then a working-class suburb where she was raised. When Marta was in first grade, her mother died at a very young age, and her father had two priorities, keeping the family together and making sure his kids got an education.
1: Both of my parents had less than three years of formal schooling in Mexico. They knew what it was like not to have a high school diploma in the 50s and the kind of opportunities that having a high school credential offered. So the promise that my father made my mother on when she was uh, on her deathbed, he, he promised that all of us would get a high school diploma. And that was his commitment to her. And he made sure that that happened daddy always supported uh, school and my grades. And, you know, I just I just worked very hard because I, I wanted to do well. And I was afraid of failing because we were expected to perform.
0: Marta did more than perform. She ended up graduating high school second out of a class of 650 students. But college hadn't always been on her radar. It was only when her seventh grade teacher mentioned it that she even realized it was a possibility.
1: Mrs. Miller, God bless her. She asked me in class one day what I was going to do when I grew up. And I told her I was going to be a hairdresser. And she said, but why? I said, because I do it. I fix people's hair on my street. I was, what, uh, 13? And I said, and they pay me for it. And she said, well, you could go to college. I said, that's for rich people. And she said, you can get a scholarship. She said, you're a very good student. I said, I can. And it was just transformative. She put a bee in my bonnet. And the idea that there was something beyond high school suddenly was out there. So my entire life journey was not one where that was an expected or known outcome. It was one where every step ladder that I jumped on, I could see something different. So it was literally a climb throughout my life. Martha applied
0: to the one school she visited, Michigan State, and went there to study Spanish. She had planned to become a teacher, but had an experience that changed her trajectory. Between her junior and senior years, she got an internship certifying farm workers for food stamps.
1: What happened was I was certifying them and then working with the migrant uh, school education program. And I didn't see migrant farm workers, I saw myself, I saw my family. Because when I was nine years old, the whole family went to pick tomatoes in Monroe, Michigan, when daddy was laid off. There were people that would come from Texas. They would work the streams and they would work the crops and do most of their income generation during that period. Very hard work and and living in the migrant housing was not very good. I couldn't divorce myself from that. But what was important is that I didn't see it as an us versus them
0: The experience made Martha realize she was in the wrong field. She'd already been admitted to a graduate program at the University of Texas, and at the last minute decided to switch her focus from Spanish to Latin American studies.
1: But she was nervous. I had never taken a social class, never a statistics class, never an econ class. So I was starting fresh at the graduate level.
0: And after a year, her professors encouraged her to pursue yet a new field, Sociology. While getting her PhD, Martha made it clear she didn't want her identity as a Latina to dictate her focus.
1: I deliberately stayed away from working on Latinos early on. There was a tendency to try to push those of us who were of that background to do that. So somebody would say, Why aren't you studying Chicanas? I said, Because I don't want to. I'm not interested in that. I was interested in Latin America and Mexico. And I wanted to be able to follow my own nose and not tell somebody else, have somebody tell me what to do. So I hadn't done anything about the about the U.S. population. I didn't work on the U.S. censuses. I worked on Latin American censuses. And I felt strongly that I did not want to be pigeonholed because there was a tendency to try to do that.
0: That all changed when she got a grant from the Department of Labor to create a new survey to learn about Latinos across the country.
1: I wrote the grant. I got it. And then my approach was, how many people can I assemble to try to work on this together, to think about how we compare Latinos, what what terms we're doing, and ask, what does it label Hispanic really mean? And it was the first time that anything was done to compare the groups. But I just didn't study Mexicans. I studied all the groups, and I studied Blacks and whites along the way. It was those types of comparisons that helped lead me to uh, the book on the Hispanic population of the United States with with Frank B.
0: That book, titled The Hispanic Population of the United States, is still used in college classrooms today. This work marked the beginning of Martha's long career researching social inequities by race and ethnicity. Flash forward through groundbreaking research on gender disparities in education, affirmative action, and much more, and Martha has now been a professor at Princeton for 23 years. But it's important to her that she never forgets where she came from.
1: That always surprises me when people talk about the heights. I know that I'm the daughter of an undocumented immigrant and I am teaching at Princeton University, that I've served on a lot of boards, but I don't see myself that way. I don't have delusions of grandeur.
0: Now, Martha mentors students and has passed the lessons she's learned to the next generation of researchers.
1: Nobody told me about Princeton. I didn't even know it existed. I didn't even know what a Ph.D. was until I was a, <laughs> a senior in high in college. What's that? Me? So I tell them, why did you apply here? How'd you get here? And I I sense sometimes their insecurities, the imposter syndrome. And when I tell students, if you're here now, you belong here. That is, you were picked over many other people who had incredible credentials. There was something in your application that a whole team saw that you can add value here. What your job is, is to find out what that is and to find your niche. Once you find your niche, you're going to understand why you're here. But that's the first part of the message. The second one I tell them, and your job is to get two people from where you came from to come here. And why? Because of the power of compound numbers. That's how you build transformative change. You create pathways for the next generation.
0: And Martha has been taking that charge seriously. She started a scholarship program at UT Austin in her father's name and one at the University of Michigan in honor of
1: her brother. If everybody just did a little bit, imagine what it would add up to. Just drips in a bucket that actually fills up and actually uh, transforms people's lives. So that's, that to me is, it gives me satisfaction. And I get these letters from the recipients every year of the award. And I write them back and I said, you know, I'm just like you because I'm from there. <laughs> it's not, I'm not any major, you know, rich donor. I'm just a, uh, a professor who really believes in the power of education to transform lives.
0: What is so impressive is that Martha's influence reaches beyond her own students and scholarship recipients.
2: I learned about Martha Tienda in that sociology class on race and ethnicity in the U.S. that put me on track to be a sociologist and to come work here at Urban.
0: That's Clara Alvarez Caraveo, a research assistant with the Health Policy Center at Urban. Clara is just at the start of her career, but she sees Marta as an important example of where her path might lead.
2: In university, I did a lot of research on the Hispanic population in the United States and uh, foreign-born immigrants. And a lot of the researchers that I was reading, they were all white men and none of them were really looked like me or looked like the populations that they were studying until i fell on this uh, article by Martha Tienda and that was the very first latina that i have ever read her research and she was a person that was researching her own population and her own community and i just thought that was very inspiring because that was the only latina that i've ever seen research her own community and I just thought to myself oh wait maybe that's something I can do.
0: Clara is also the daughter of Mexican immigrants and grew up on Catalina Island, a small island off the coast of Los Angeles that has only about 2500 year-round residents. The community is tiny and very tight-knit.
2: Everybody there is basically an essential worker like you have either you're a firefighter, a policeman, a preschool teacher a high school teacher, or you work in the tourism industry, those are basically your only options for employment on the island. Our economy is totally driven by tourism. Prior to the pandemic, we would have three large cruise ships come over to the island and drop off thousands of tourists. And we would just like accommodate them in our hotels or in our little water activities like parasailing or jet skiing. The vast majority of people work in the tourism and hospitality industry including myself.
0: Since Claudio was 14, she worked in a parasail shop to save up money to go to college.
2: Every summer, there would be a group of people who would come for like a month or two for a vacation. It's interesting. There's very much an us and them mentality on the island. We call ourselves the Islanders, the locals, and anyone who doesn't stay year round, they're not Islanders. There's a big disconnect because in the tourism industry, A lot of the jobs are very low paying jobs, minimum wage. And then these boatloads of very wealthy tourists from all over the world come in and are spending vast amounts of money on very expensive activities like ziplining and parasailing. so there's this otherness that you feel from everybody else in the world because you have a picture of what the world looks like. And it's very... White and rich and privileged. And it's very different than your world because the island has a very large Latinx population, specifically foreign born.
0: Clara grew up speaking Spanish and didn't learn English until she started first grade.
2: I was kind of in the remedial behind class because I didn't grow up speaking English. But that changed really quickly because my teachers basically forbade my parents from speaking to us in Spanish because they said it would put us behind everyone else. So starting from first grade, they just tried to speak to us in English.
0: Clara's parents didn't attend college and they didn't necessarily expect Clara or her sisters to either.
2: They just wanted us to do the best that we could, but it was a really hands-off parenting because they were so busy working. Me and my sisters would compete with each other to try and push each other to try and do our best. But that competition, really stemmed from our desire to do our best and achieve as much as we possibly could and go to university so we could later provide for our parents because they gave up so much to try and raise three girls at the same time.
0: In high school, Clara learned about the Santa Carolina Island Fund for Higher Education, or SCIF, a college readiness program that helps first-generation, low-income students apply to colleges and universities. Skiff was instrumental in helping Clara and her sisters get through the college admissions process.
2: We had no idea what we were doing, but again, we just tried to push ourselves to get into the best universities possible. And I ended up attending Cornell in upstate New York, and my two sisters ended up attending Barnard in New York City. So we went as far away from home as possible, which upset my parents, but they were just happy we were able to get into good schools And I had to convince them that Cornell University was a good school. They had never heard of it.
0: Like Martha, Clara went to school thinking she'd major in one subject before realizing she had other options.
2: I came in as STEM because I thought STEM was the only way I could make money and support my family in the long run. So I told myself, you have to do this and you'll love it. And the first two years... I absolutely hated it.
0: But in her third year, Clara took a race and ethnicity in the U.S. course by a professor who was the child of Latin American immigrants, and she felt like she could deeply relate to him.
2: When he got to the section of the course about Latinx population in the United States, I just saw me and my family and all of those statistics and numbers. And I was like, wow, I didn't know I could like study myself and Like, my community, like, what major can I go to that can support that?
0: Even though it was late in the game to switch majors, Clara switched to sociology with minors in policy analysis and demography.
2: It was a really scary change, and I thought I would be letting down my parents and my ancestors and my family. And I thought I would never make a living, but then I realized that you could actually, like, get jobs that focuses on research and researching your communities and people that look like you.
0: But to Clara, majoring in sociology meant more than a potential job.
2: So I really love the sociology major and doing sociological research because I feel like these are all issues that deeply affect my community and my family. So I wanted to do this research and find solutions to the problems that affected my dad or my cousin or the woman down the street.
0: When Clara read Marta Tienda's work in college, she felt inspired to bring her own experiences into the
2: research process. She has a very persuasive manner of writing, and she's just so analytical and precise in the research questions that she asks that only people with like lived experiences could understand or uh, ask those questions, which I didn't see in a lot of the other researchers that were doing research in this space, studying Latinx immigrants. So I thought that like her lived experiences like really benefited her work. And I thought that perhaps I could use my own experiences and the experiences of my community to also push that space farther, because there are a lot of questions that haven't been asked that I really want to ask
0: So this is a large part of why Clada came to work at Urban, to do research that informs public policy.
2: Policy is like one of the ultimate ways to pay it forward because it's such systemic, impactful change that can influence generations. And it's not just helping people on like the individual person-to-person level, but like at the community and state level. And not just for your own community, but people who look like you across the country Or people who don't look like you, who are going through the same issues that your own community is going
0: through. Clara proudly embraces her identity as a Latina researcher, but like Marta, that's not the only way she wants to be viewed.
2: At times I do feel tokenized, especially like going to university and coming here to urban. There are always people who will say you only got that spot because you're a Latina and you're first generation and you're low income. Like you are just the perfect little nugget of uh, like representation that somebody would want. That has influenced me tremendously. There are a lot of times where I apply to things and I don't include my race or identity because I want to feel like I earned it, which I think is not a good mentality. And I wish I didn't feel like I had to do that. But I definitely feel like I earned my position at Urban and earned my position as a researcher because of the work that I do.
0: And ultimately, Klaudah sees her work not just as an output, but a starting point to create needed and lasting solutions for her community and others that look like it.
2: I think I'm a little bit different just because I think that policy research is really, really important, but only if it benefits the communities that are being researched. I love to ask questions that are going to have an impact on people's lives and livelihoods. I think that this gift program had a really huge influence and the pay it forward mentality had a really big influence for me because I only have so much time on this earth and I want to spend it asking the questions that are going to help the people that I love and help other people in the process too.
0: So that's our show. Big, big thank yous to Marta and Clara for sharing their stories. These interviews were much more personal than many of the ones we highlight on Critical Value. And we're so grateful to them for their thoughtfulness, their candor, and for sharing their stories of resilience, bravery, and grit. Big thank you as well to producers Veronica Gaetan and Jacinth Jones and our sound editor Riley Byrne at Podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. If you enjoy the show, please take a second to go on iTunes and give us a rating or a review. We really appreciate it. And it helps others to find out about Critical Value. Our music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team and my two kids who continue to be co-producers.
2: Thank you for listening to this podcast. Uh, You could review it and put five stars on it. Thank you for listening again.